Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. So I say, you know, stick to your values and sort of try to be an educated consumer. And at the end of the day, there's an acceptance piece to this where you just sort of got to accept that you're going to pick one route for yourself, for your kids, whether it's vaccinations, whether it's choices you're making about after school activities, you name it, you're going to you're going to take one route and not every parent takes the same route. And you've got to accept that you've you've used your own values and you've used the information you have available to you to make you know the best decisions possible. That was Dr. Elise Dobrow-DeMarco on Psychologists Off the Clock. We are three clinical psychologists committed to cutting-edge, integrative, and evidence-based strategies for living well. On this podcast, we bring you ideas from psychology that can help you flourish in your work, parenting, relationships, and health. I am Dr. Diana Hill, practicing in Seaside, Santa Barbara, California. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado. And from coast to coast, I'm Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a Boston-based clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University. We hope this podcast offers you ideas for how to live a full and meaningful life. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. I spoke with Dr. Elise Dobrow-DeMarco, a clinical psychologist and writer who specializes in treating stressed out moms using evidence-based approaches in this episode. So many moms worry constantly about whether what we are thinking or doing is good enough. And I've actually been following Elise's work for some time because her writing fits into this niche that really works well for me in that it's both funny, educational, evidence-based, and super relatable. So of course, I love it. In this episode, Elise gives us a preview of the book that she's working on, which focuses on uh, some of the different ways that evidence-based psychology can be helpful for stressed out moms. And she talks about how some of these ideas can help us to deal with our stress more effectively. Debbie, I know that you listened to the episode. Were there any ideas from Elise that were particularly resonant with you? Oh, there were so many, Yael. I mean, I think all three of us co-hosts are moms. And as a mom myself, I could relate to pretty much everything in it. Um, so in particular, well, first of all, you guys talk about the role of childhood temperament and the the fit between the parent and the child. And that was what my dissertation topic was on. And so I am going to actually commit here now to prepare an episode on that topic because I think it's so important. And we've talked about doing it for a long time. So one that of these days we'll... One. Yeah, we'll come out with that. Um, But what I really resonated with in this episode so much, you know, there's just so many emotional challenges involved in motherhood, in addition to just the daily stress of it, which there's a lot, and worrying about being good at it. You talked with her about some of just the straight up anxiety that comes up when you're a mom. And I really appreciated that. I feel like sometimes there's just so much worry and anxiety and potential heartbreak from being a parent. Um, that we should probably just acknowledge. Um, I have 
just a quick personal example. When my first daughter was a newborn baby, and you know, when when you have your first baby, it's just a, it's a amazing time of life, and it's it's hard, so stressful, so stressful, so overwhelming. And with my first, we had had a difficult medical issue when she was a newborn, and it thankfully it was treated and resolved fairly quickly. But it was a hard experience. And then when she was six months old, Sandy Hook happened. And I think just being a new mom, I was just so just knocked down by that, you know, just the disbelief about that. And you guys kind of talk about that fear of this, these, this potential for something to happen. And I heard a quote when that was all going on. It's from Elizabeth Stone. And it's, it's this. Making the decision to have a child, it's momentous. It's to decide forever to have your heart go walking outside of your body. And I think that, you know, we love these little people so much. And there's just something that's so scary about having them out there in the world. I just think it takes so much courage. I don't know how any of us do it, honestly. Um, So I just, yeah, they go through their lives in so many little and big ways that, that, that we have to sit with our own fear. And so I just love that you and Elise normalize that anxiety and talk about how we can respond to it in ways that are going to be helpful for us and for our children. So I loved that. Thank you for sharing some of that personal, uh, the personal side for you. Well, I think just to kind of dovetail and head in a different direction, what I really loved about the episode is how Elise talks about normalizing the full range of parenting experiences. So there's the anxiety and the deep love But there's, you know, the irritation and the frustration and even the, you know, tedious boredom of some of the activities. And I think for me, when I first became a parent, I had these high expectations of always being the kind of person who was going to be, you know, kind and caring and show that level of unconditional love that we all fantasize about. And the reality is that I was still me and I still wanted, you know, to have a little bit of quiet time and and my sleep and to be able to do the work that I find meaningful. And now as my kids are older, um, you know, different emotions come up in reaction to them. uh, And it's not always unconditional love or just concern for their their welfare. Um, And as we talk about in the episode, all of that is really normal. And I think reading Elise's work and doing some of the research that I've done on the work-parent balance uh, issue, which I talk a lot about on here, has really helped me to normalize my own range of emotional experiences as a parent. And I think it is really important for all of us moms to know that it's a complicated relationship and that we're going to feel all sorts of different things. I love that too. And I toward the end, um, you and Elise talk about some things like self-compassion, patience, forgiveness. And I think all of this is really about awareness. Just it's such an intense experience with so many ups and downs. And I love this quote too. I'm, I'm full of quotes today. <laughs> Another it. quote that I love, and actually I couldn't find the original source of this. So if anyone knows, let us know, cause I'd, I'd love to see it. It's that motherhood is the shortest and steepest path to enlightenment. Because I think if you do take a look at this and kind of use your emotions effectively and, and approach it from a place of compassion and awareness. I think it's it's pretty amazing. I agree. Well, we hope that you all enjoy this episode um, in our interview with Dr. Elise Dobrow-DeMarco. <music> 
In this episode, I will be talking with Dr. Elise Dobrow DeMarco, a clinical psychologist, diplomat of the Academy of Cognitive Therapy, and writer who specializes in treating stressed out moms using evidence based approaches. That is, when she isn't busy being a stressed out mom to her own two young boys. Elise's writing has been featured in Scary Mommy, Motherwell, Motherly, Pop Sugar, and then she also hosts her own blog, drcbtmom.com. I'm a huge fan of Elise's because she has the unique gift of being able to write about scientifically-based approaches in a way that is both helpful and funny and then also totally relatable. And to that end, I'm so excited about the book that she's currently working on, which explores mom stress and offers helpful guidance from the world of cognitive behavioral therapy. And so I was really lucky to get Elise to agree to come on and give us a preview of her book. Welcome, Elise. Thank you, Yael. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, We're so excited. This is obviously one of my favorite topics because I'm constantly talking about parenting stress and work family stuff. So I'm really excited to gain um, some access to your wisdom and to learn a little bit about what you're going to be writing about in your book. So I wanted to just have you start off by telling us a little bit about your journey into treating mom stress. So um, you're a clinical psychologist in private practice, but how did you begin to specialize in treating mom stress in your private practice and in your writing? So uh, when I started practicing in New Jersey, so my office is in Summit, New Jersey, which is like Metro New York City. Um, And when I started practicing here, I had just had my first son um, and just started kind of by happenstance, by location, like seeing a lot of moms of young kids too, who came in and didn't necessarily fit into any of the diagnostic criteria that CBT, you know, protocols had been designed for like OCD or generalized anxiety or things like that. But Um, had significant amounts of stress sort of relative to parenting that responded really well to CBT strategies. Um, And so I started using the CBT training that I'd had, again, to work with things like OCD and GAD and such. I started using these um, strategies to help moms. And then, of course, I was going through all the same stuff at the same time, right? So I was like experiencing all the mom stress, all the mom anxiety, all the, you know, role shifts, all this stuff. Um, So I was kind of using it on myself at the same time as I was using it with with um, these women with whom I worked and found that, again, the CBT strategy really worked very well and were really effective for a lot of this mom-related stuff. Um, so I kind of fell into it um, in a sense and then started to see how well it worked and then started to write about it um, as a result of that. Yeah. And so there's a couple of things that I think are particularly interesting about that I just want to point out. So the first is that um, you know, being a CBT trained therapist and somebody who sort of comes from a more protocol based background, and, and you and I have discussed this um, before this episode, that a lot of those protocols are really driven to treat a particular diagnosis. And mom stress doesn't really fit under a particular mm-hmm. diagnosis, and yet it's something that crops up a lot. Um, you know, just experientially, it happens for most parents that we get stressed out. And it also is um, something that shows up a lot in private practices. And there's very little that's written, right? Most of the books um, and certainly the scientific literature really focuses on a specific clinical diagnosis, not on more general stress or um, sort of life stress kinds of situations. And so um, I think it's really amazing the work that you've done, which is to sort of step away a little bit from the diagnostic labels and more into the experience and then to really explore how some of the treatment interventions can really be helpful. The other thing that I think is so fun and and is just kind of a, a real 
perk of being a psychologist is that you get to really try out some of these strategies and find out how useful they are in your own life. And it sounds like for oh, you, sure. that really kind of happened at the same time as you were starting to see that in your private practice and you were also experiencing some of those things yourself. For sure. And my friends too. I mean, that was what was so interesting. So I was sort of coming at this from all sides. So my own experience, my personal friend's experience, and then, you know, the experience I was having at work with people that I was working with. Yeah, for sure. So it, it provided me with kind of a wealth of um, examples and data, you know, to use as I was coming to to think more about these things. And to your point to Yael about um, sort of protocol driven CBT, what's really interesting, um, and I know you know this, is that like in the CBT world now, uh, there's been a there's a lot of focus recently on how do we get CBT out to more people? How do we make CBT accessible? And I think one of the ways we can do that is again by um, applying some of these strategies that we know work really well to larger groups of people. And and um, and moms are are a large group of people uh, who can really benefit from um, all that CBT has to offer for sure. Yeah, yeah, and I and I know to that one thing that you've really recognized in your own, through entering into the writing world is that there's so much that's written by and for moms who are experiencing all the normal stresses that parents do experience, but there's very little that's written by psychologists with this sort of background in evidence-based um, psychotherapy practices. And so it's such a, it's such a wonderful thing that you've been contributing to the, to the online world and, and pretty soon to the, to the paper book world. Yeah, Which, thank you. Yeah. So I wonder if you can just sort of start us off by talking a little bit more generally about what some of the core concepts from CBT are that you incorporate into your approach to treating moms. Sure. So um, I'll give just a very brief background of what CBT is um, for any listeners who may not be familiar. So cognitive behavioral therapy, right? So it's an evidence-based treatment, um, a set of strategies that has been shown, you know, in, in countless research studies to be helpful for all forms of anxiety, depression, eating disorders, a number of other things. Um, and CBT, you know, is strategy-based. So it's very much a collection of tools that you can use to help you manage, again, a whole host of stressors. Um, and the C in CBT is for cognitive, so that's looking at the way we think about things and um, and taking new approaches to that. The B is behavioral, changing the way we act and behave in the hopes of you know changing our mood, changing our, our stress, et cetera. And then there's other offshoots of CBT, which, which I'll talk about in a minute. So in terms of how I use CBT with moms, I use it kind of across the spectrum, across all the kind of mom-like issues. Um, so one of the things that um, I've come to think about a lot is how the maternal experience changes people's lives in many different ways. So one of which for sure is that um, anxiety and stress ratchets up. Like you don't need an expert to tell you that. Um, <laughs> that's true of all mothers. And you know, even moms for whom anxiety or stress was never really an issue before having kids, even those moms tend to say, hey, well, I'm a lot more stressed now. I'm like responsible for this person's life, you know, and so on. So um, a lot of the CBT strategies that we use to manage anxiety generally speaking, or different kinds of anxiety map really well onto like mom anxiety, right? So uh, an example of that uh, would be like cognitive strategies. So we talk in CBT a lot about how we can use evidence to um, essentially disprove some of the things that we're afraid will happen. So, I, uh, so let me give you an example of that. So I hear from moms all the time, this issue of something to the effect of like, 
dot, dot, dot happened and I'm the worst mom ever, <laughs> right? Um, and uh, what, ha what, what that's an example of um, is something we call in CBT overgeneralizing, right? Taking one small piece of information and assuming that it is evidence to back up the larger truth. So say, you know, you forgot to pack your kid a lunch one day at school. You sent your kid off to school with no lunch and you say, oh, my kid had no lunch today. I'm the worst mom ever. Well, you're overgeneralizing a little bit, right? Because you're saying you're the worst mom based on just forgetting one lunch. Um, so first you you would help a mom to learn to recognize that she's overgeneralizing. And then you would say, okay, let's look for the evidence of that. Like, let's look for the evidence that you're the worst mom ever. Give, give me some evidence supporting that. And of course, the person would likely say, oh, I forgot, you know, so-and-so's lunch. Okay, any other evidence that you're the worst mom ever? You know, and sometimes people will say, oh, well, three weeks ago, I, you know, yelled at my kid or, you know, whatever. And then you'd say, well, what about evidence against this idea that you are the worst mom ever? And generally speaking, there's tons of evidence um, that, that someone is not the worst mom ever, how well they care for their kids, how well their kids are doing. I mean, there's, you know, million different pieces of evidence that a mom can like call to mind. Um, so what CBT does there is it helps the mom to sort of take a step back, recognize uh, that she's thinking in sort of a problematic way, overgeneralizing, and then it sort of forces her to recognize the ample evidence against the thing that she's anxious about and upset about, right? Um, so that's that's kind of a, a, a small sample of something we might do if we're doing some cognitive work with moms. Um, so, so again, there's there's the anxiety piece of it. We do cognitive work. We can do behavioral work with moms too to manage their anxiety. So, an, again, a brief example. Um, I've worked with a number of moms who themselves have issues with germs and get very worried about passing these issues on to their kids. Their kids noticing that they're, you know, avoiding doorknobs, you know, and mm -hmm. avoiding using pens at pediatricians' offices and that sort of thing. And um, they really want to get a handle on their fear of germs. And so... Uh, behaviorally, we might do with these moms what we call exposure, where we actually expose the moms to the things that they avoid, that they are scared of, um, in the hopes that they can learn to recognize that they can actually tolerate their anxiety effectively and can approach these things. So, you know, like I've worked with moms who are like, I've uh, tasked them with, again, touching pens in doctor's offices for practice and, you know, touching all over their house, all kinds of dirty surfaces and, you know, so on and so forth. There's a, m a million different things we can do. So, that's just some example, some brief examples of some things we can do regarding anxiety. Um, another piece of mom brain uh, that we talk about a lot, or I talk about a lot in the book, is this idea that like your brain splits into a million different pieces when you have a kid, right? And um, it is very difficult to uh, prioritize everything you used to prioritize because there is so much on your plate and so much to worry about. So a lot of what I do... Um, with moms is help them to sort of prioritize their lives, to figure out what is, you know, what things are meaningful to them and therefore what things they should make a point of continuing to incorporate into their lives. And um, I use CBT for that. And I also use um, techniques from acceptance and commitment therapy or ACT where we have, where I have moms consider what their values are um, and figure out what's important to them and then make choices, you know, very consciously make choices consistent with these values and prioritize their lives and their schedules according to what they value. Um, and then I guess the last kind of piece of, of, of things that we talk about a lot is relationships, right? Once you have children, it really changes relationship dynamics between you and your partner, if you have one, between you and your extended family, between you and your friends. Um, so I spend a lot of time too working with moms talking about that and talking about how to navigate 
relationship shifts. And uh, there's, a, there's a, a, a sort of an offshoot of CBT called dialectical behavior therapy that has a lot to say about sort of how to be interpersonally effective um, and how to kind of ask for what you need and how to navigate relationships successfully. So I use a lot of techniques from DBT when I'm talking relationship stuff. So, so that's kind of an overview of the types of things that I'll do with moms. Yeah. Well, this book is going to be jam packed and I'm so excited to read it because it sounds like you really, you do draw from a lot of the evidence-based treatments. So cognitive behavioral therapy, acceptance and commitment therapy, and dialectical behavior therapy, which are all sort of under the umbrella of CBT because they're all evidence-based treatments, but they all offer sort of unique components. Um, and I love sort of how you apply them to some of the specific areas. When Backing up a little bit, one of the things that I think is such an interesting modern problem when it comes to anxiety, and so you talked about using some of the exposure-based approaches with like germ uh, anxiety, germ phobia. Um, but one of the things that I see in my private practice a lot is this, it's sort of not so clear how much the fears are, do have evidence behind them and how much the fears are really sort of unanchored to any concrete evidence. And the reason for that, I think, is that we have so much information coming at us, you know, through the internet and through science. And some, it, there is, so many conflicting narratives about whether we should be concerned about something. So, you know, one example might be immunizations. Um, and, you know, there are certainly branches of science that say we should definitely have them and you're endangering your kids if you don't get them. And then there's other branches of, and you can sort of credit or, or discredit depending on the sources that you value. Um, but there might be other branches of information that are coming in saying, you know, you're putting your kid at danger if you do immunize. And I think a lot of moms and, and dads as well, but a lot of parents get really anxious about, you know, what to do and what to approach and what to avoid. And that anxiety can be so pervasive and it kind of feels like no matter what you do, what you approach or what you avoid that you're making a mistake. And then, and then you worry about the welfare of your kids and also how good of a parent you're being. And I'm curious in those grayer areas of, you know, do you approach or encourage a parent to approach or, or do you sort of allow them to kind of, uh, use their anxiety as information to direct their behaviors? And how do you help parents make those kinds of decisions? So I'll, uh, so I have sort of a, a, like a larger answer and then a smaller answer to that. I think that the larger answer is yes. So a lot of the, um, I, I talk in the book a lot about um, sort of anxiety that has evidence to support it and anxiety that doesn't, <laughs> right? Um, because the, what, what I had, the two examples I gave before are examples from where there really isn't evidence to support the anxiety, right? And then you're kind of going through the usual CBT channels of collecting evidence and challenging your thoughts and such. But yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things that um, we are anxious about as parents that has at least some evidence to support it. Um, uh, and, and I'll throw out something even you didn't throw out yet, but I think it's important too. What about things like school shootings and, you know, horrible things that happen in our world that we can't help but be anxious about, right? And we when we apologize hear. if we're creating more anxiety as you're listening. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, I hope no, but they're not. No, um, and there are realities, right? That there are elements of living in this world that are really terrifying, especially when we bring small children into it that we want to protect, right? We're sort of, that is our goal. We want to protect our children. Right, for sure. So um, so I'll, I'm going to answer you in two parts because there's, uh, I'll sort of answer about the, the, you know, school shooting, traumatic stuff. How do you manage that? But also what you were referring to before of like, 
conflicting pieces of information and how do you manage that? So, um, with the type of, you know, so, so I'll, I'll give myself as an example. So like when the Parkland shooting happened, I was consumed with worry. Um, and it, it just was what it was. And that's actually the message that I give to moms about that kind of anxiety. I actually spread a message of mindful self-compassion. Like you've just got to be compassionate towards yourself and recognize that in those instances, the worry is inevitable, right? I mean, quite frankly, if you hear a story like the Parkland story and you are a parent, I mean, forget being a parent if you're anyone, I think, but especially if you have a parent who has children in schools, it is near impossible to push that worry out of your mind. But I think a lot of parents try to, oh, no, no, I've got to get, you know, I've got to go about my day. And I, you know, so I think a lot of the initial message uh, that I give around that is mindful self-compassion of like, you've got to be, yeah, because you're going to be worried. Um, and then at the same time to sort of, um, partner that self-compassion, um, with some change oriented strategies. So I'll, I can actually use myself as an example with Parkland specifically, uh, true story. Um, and like, again, in my, in the book, I use a lot of my own examples. So here's one. I love it. Um, when I heard about the Parkland shooting, I was devastated as was everybody and, and filled with anxiety. I mean, there's no question. I have one child in public school and another child about to start in the fall. And, um, so I just had to sit with that. And I kind of had to recognize that like that day was kind of shot at least like I was doing my work, but my mind was half there, half not. Um, and I would say probably a couple days I was distracted and I just had to let myself be distracted and recognize, you know, that the, this, the, these stories were everywhere and hard to escape and very upsetting. Um, and then at the same time, when I was sort of, um, at a place where I could kind of think a little more clearly about it, I said, all right, is there anything I can do? Like, what can I, what can I do here to affect some change? Um, and then I, I actually ended up, um, this was right around the time of the midterm when the midterm elections were heating up. It happened that my congressional candidate was a gun sense candidate, like somebody who was running uh, was a gun sense candidate. And so um, I decided to start canvassing for her, uh, going door to door, like on my Sundays, canvassing for her. Um, And she ultimately won, which was great and amazing. I mean, had she not won, it would have been a little less amazing. But (laughs) what I sort of did was I figured out, okay, I'm really stressed about this. And part of this, I just have to sit with and recognize that this is anxiety about a a larger governmental issue that I cannot do much about, namely that we just don't have the gun control laws that I feel comfortable with. But on a smaller scale, is there something I can do when there was, and I did it and I felt better. So that's sort of, um, that's the larger message that I try to send moms about this, again, this anxiety, this sort of evidence-based big stuff worry anxiety where you start from a place of mindful self-compassion and then you try to find any way, however small, to affect some change. Um, to go back to your question about, well, what if you're getting competing messages? You know, partly I have people go back to their values because a lot of times, you know, people don't stop to be kind of educated consumers, like about like where are these messages coming from? And I think a really good way to become a more educated consumer of parent blogs and articles and whatever is to say, all right, well, what are the things that I value? What are the things that are important to me? Right. And based on this, um, you know, do, do I, um, will I give more weight to this story from this particular sort of set of moms or organization or news outlet or whatever? Or do I give then more weight to this particular set of messages? Right. So, um, so I'm very much about saying, okay, figure out what your values are. And then, and this is something that I use from, um, CBT for eating disorders that I used to do a fair amount of consider the messenger, like 
Who's telling you these things, right? What mom blog are you reading? What mom publication are you reading? And are these mom bloggers, these writers, these whoever, are their values in line with yours, right? I think that's such a critical um, piece of information you have to have as you're taking in all of this, you know, all of this news and all of these facts, some of which, you know, kind of contradict the others, right? So, so I say, you know, stick to your values and sort of try to be an educated consumer. And at the end of the day, there's an acceptance piece to this too, where you just sort of got to accept that you're going to pick one route for yourself, for your kids, whether it's vaccinations, whether it's choices you're making about after school activities, you name it, you're going to, you're going to take one route and not every parent takes the same route. And you've got to accept that you've, you've used your own values and you've used the information you have available to you to make, you know, the best decisions possible. Yeah, I love that. And I I love the emphasis on values. And I actually, to some extent, I almost think that you're asking people to clarify their values when they're considering small behaviors that they can engage in that can help them manage their worries better. And I think your example of um, your response to the Parkland um, shooting is a really good one because I think you identified that your value was to try to affect change, even if it was in you know small ways through activity, um, you know, to support uh, candidates that you know, we're trying to advocate for more gun control. And I think um, the on the opposite side, I think it can be helpful to sort of think, think about the way that our anxiety, when we're not clear about our values, can really drive a lot of behavior. And I think even just recognizing that, becoming more mindful and aware of how anxiety can really prompt us to be fearful and to retreat and to um, try to hide when that isn't consistent with our values of sort of, you know, living fully. And I think that that can be really important to just recognize just even how the worry impacts us as parents and also as role models for our kids. Um, oh, and for so sure. I think in, in the way that we respond to conflicting messages as well as, you know, to, to real, uh, true, scare, truly scary things out in the mm-hmm. world, it can help us to sort of make um, decisions that don't necessarily where, – where self-protection or even the protection of our kids isn't necessarily the only guiding force because that's not the only thing that we're going to live for and that's not the only thing that we want our kids to live for. Interestingly, I'm actually – I'm reading um, Michelle Obama's – uh, memoir right now, Becoming. And she talks a lot about this, that when they were in the White House, that, you know, it was always a concern for her to protect her daughters. But that there were times and, and real specific incidents where she just said, you know, they have to live, they have to be kids, they have to sort of get out into the world. And that means, you know, confronting some of the dangers and being willing to tolerate some of those risks. She didn't use those exact words, but um, I think yeah. it's sort of an interesting example and and I think that she offers that same kind of wisdom of of following the values instead of just following the the anxiety directives. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, and and I talk to to um, patients all the time about making values consistent decisions versus anxiety consistent decisions, right? Because like to your point, like you know, there may be a mom who who really values um, you know her, her kids having diverse, interesting experiences, right? And at the same time, she might say, well, you know what, you know, I was going to take my kids into the, tra- you know, to, to take them to the train in the city to see this exhibit at this museum. But like, you know, I heard that there was a bomb threat at Penn Station and, and now I don't want to take them. And that's a great example, right, where her value, her one of her core values of exposing her kids to, you know, a variety of experiences comes right up against her anxiety 
of exposing her kids to a place like Penn Station. And, and absolutely one of our goals, you know, not only my goals, but, you know, any CBT Act therapist in general has the goal of helping to encourage the person to take, again, the values consistent action, not the anxiety consistent action, right? So to get that mom, to get her kids on that train and go explore that museum because that is consistent with her values and, and ultimately um, opens up her life more, right? And opens up her kids' lives more. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, all right. So another topic that your book dives into is the complex feelings we have about our children. Um, it turns out that we don't always feel, as you as you write, roses and sunshine about them. And I actually, right before um, we started this recording, I was on your blog looking at some of your short videos, which are great uh, for any of the listeners out there. We'll link to your blog because you have these like short snippet videos as well as some of the essays that you've written that talk mm-hmm. about some of these um, issues from a CBT perspective. So I'm curious, um, you know, how, how do you help moms to become more comfortable with the more complicated feelings that they have about their kids, right? We have this impression we should just have unconditional positive regard for our kids all the time, but that isn't the reality that most of us experience. Yeah. Oh, for sure. And I also think it's, um, it's our feelings about our kids are so much more nuanced than we're led to believe. So I think on the one end, you're right, yeah, there's like all these messages of like, oh, children are, you know, the greatest thing ever. There's the hashtag grateful, which like, don't even get me started on (laughs) my very complicated feelings about moms who post, you know, these pictures of their kids and say hashtag grateful. Like, so, so there's that message on one extreme. And then there's like another extreme where like you get these mom websites that post these like snarky things about like, you know, how much you hate your kids and want to throw them out a window, you know, like sarcastic stuff, but like, um, you know, and I think there's very little in between that's offered to moms, but yet it's that in between experience that really is what we're all having. We're like, yes, at times we may feel hashtag grateful and at times we may want to throw our kids out the window, but like generally it's something sort of in the middle of that. (laughs) So a lot of the work that I do with moms is, is sort of normalizing their feelings, normalizing not only their bad feelings. So like, again, those times when you literally feel like you want to sell your kid to the highest bidder, we all have those times. So like normalizing those, but then also normalizing some of the, like, like the boredom is a great example where like, you know what? New motherhood can be real boring and just really mundane. Right. And I think a lot of moms feel really badly about that, especially, um, I know I've worked with a lot of moms who, had this notion in their heads pre-kids of like, you know, being a mother is my calling and this is what I'm going to do. And, you know, and then they have these kids and they're like, man, this is a drag, right? You know, (laughs) moms worked very, very hard to get their kids maybe through many rounds of IVF or complicated adoption processes. And they finally have these kids and then they're like, wow, this is boring. But, but I can't admit that this is boring because I worked so hard for this, right? I've I've got, I'm supposed to love every moment. Yeah, totally. Like my gosh, I put in so many hours and years and, and, and so much money in some cases to, to get here. And how could I be so bored? Um, and so I think a lot of it is just normalizing like the good, the bad, and the sort of more ambivalent feelings, um, that moms have. Like I mentioned the, the gratitude thing, and I've written about this a bunch of times. Um, you know, I think uh, the gratitude sort of mandate, as I see it, can be really hard for some moms, like hashtag grateful, especially Thanksgiving. Like, you'll read a lot of people, you know, writing about how grateful they are for their kids and whatever. And like, I've worked with a number of moms who find this sort of gratitude mandate very oppressive because, in fact, on paper, they do have everything to be grateful for, right? Like, they may have, like, 
a bunch of kids and a secure lifestyle. And yet, you know, maybe they're still struggling with depression, with anxiety, with interpersonal family issues, et cetera, and so forth. And so these moms often come away from all these gratitude articles and postings and such feeling incredibly guilty. Like, well, I have everything to be grateful for, and yet I can't be grateful. And what's wrong with me? Um, and so I talked to moms a fair amount about that idea too, of like, again, this, this notion that, um, that you need to be grateful if you have this, what looks like on paper, sort of perfect family life. Um, and the fact is that, you know, you may have all these things to be grateful for and yet still be struggling and that's okay. So I talk about that a lot too, and write about that a bunch. Yeah. Yeah. I love your writing on that, but just backing up a little bit, I really liked your essay about how parenting can really feel like a very long game of shoots and ladders because that is a game that both of my older two sons were obsessed with for a long time. And it is just horrendously boring. Like it, it just, it's so unengaging and they loved it. And I think that is normal. And the other thing that I, I really resonates with me is just sort of the the normalcy of having these ambivalent, boring, very grateful, super delighted, you know, just the whole range of human emotions as you're going right. through parenting because that is what it is to be a human. And that's a really core part of acceptance and commitment therapy, which kind of just acknowledges that we as human beings are going to have the whole range of natural human emotion. If you're a parent and you have everything, it doesn't mean that you get to skip out on all the normal human feelings that that are a part of our experience. So you're going to yeah, still sure. feel bored. You're going to still feel irritable at times. You're going to still feel, um, you know, excited at times. And, and it's, it's all okay. It's just what it is to be alive and, and going through life. The other thing that I'll also add, which is um, something that I've done a little bit of uh, – exploration into the scientific literature is about how the relationship between a parent and their kid is like any relationship and it's complicated. And in any close For relationship, sure. you have feelings about the other person and, and you have two sets of desires and perspectives and preferences that bump into each other, right? Just as is true about our relationships with our partners, our relationship with our colleagues, you and your kids don't always have the same agenda. I mean, in fact, part of their developmental responsibilities are to have different agendas than you at different times, you know, like especially oh, during the sure. toddler phase or during the teenage phase. And so it's not only normal, it's actually um, to be expected and healthy for you guys to have some conflict. And there's actually one study that I like to cite to my parent uh, clients, which is um, within an hour, moms and their young children had on average three to 15 episodes of conflict per hour mm -hmm. on average. And that is just normal. And I think, as you're saying, like, it is important to normalize that experience, that it really is a, a beautiful thing. And we love our kids so much. And we're going to have, you know, the full range of experiences that we have in any close relationship with them, because they're, they're little people too. Oh, for sure. For sure. And, and again, I think, you know, social media plays such a part in all of this too, in shaping what we expect of ourselves as parents and shaping what we expect our emotions will be, right? Because we look at other parents' posts and we think we're supposed to feel the way they're feeling and look the way they're looking. And um, again, you, 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 a lot of what I talk to moms about is, is, is trying to filter all of that through what's more reasonable to expect given the parenting experience. And just what you said, Yael, absolutely with kids like, you know, um, I always think about, and I, I studied this first years ago, maybe in like intro psych, the, the concept of like goodness of fit 
Um, and this idea that like sometimes people fit well and sometimes they don't. And I remember studying this in developmental psychology like 300 years ago in undergrad <laughs> where like th there was some study and I'm going to screw it up. Um, so I'll, I'll just say very generally, like there was some discussion of like, that there were some kids who who uh, temperamentally fit better with their parents than others. Um, and that's just by dint of, you know, genetics and, you know, whatever else. And, and again, if you're, for whatever reason, not a great fit with your kid, um, it can be challenging for you. And also there's the kids in phases thing as well, right? Where like certain phases might not be a good fit for you. So uh, with my, my younger son, I, who's delightful. I was, a, I was nevertheless a bad fit with his toddler phase. So unlike his older brother who never hit, never bit, never threw, my younger son like went through a phase, very typical of biting, hitting, throwing, but it was just not a good fit for me. Personality wise, like I couldn't make sense of it, which, you know, I've come to realize I, there was no sense to it. Um, but I just, I got very exasperated by this behavior in him and my failure to, you know, be able to make a dent in it. Um, and so for me, that was a really good example of like, again, I, I, my younger son's actually quite a good fit for me now and was a great fit for me as an infant. But in that one particular stage was not a great fit for like my temperament. Um, and so just coming to accept that, rather than expecting, again, that every moment's going to be amazing or, you know, expecting that you should have this unconditional love that means that you're never, you know, super annoyed with this kid or never, you know, have like fantasies of dropping your this kid off with the neighbor and, you know, going someplace else or whatever. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I, I think this might be a different study than the one that you're referencing, but I was recently looking at a study that looked at kids with more temperamental difficulties that were just dispositionally like had more, um, you know, temper tantrums and things like that, and that the quality between parent and child was, as expected, more difficult. And I think right. that we can sort of be hard on ourselves, but it doesn't serve us well. I think utility-wise, it's it's more useful to sort of apply some of that mindful self-compassion and say, you know, it, there isn't a perfect fit and I am struggling to sort of meet my child with where they're at, but I don't need to beat myself up. I need to sort of explore what would be the most useful thing that I could do given who my child is and who I am, right? Because you might not be able to change your child's temperament or your own, but like you were talking about with your response to Parkland, you can sort of be curious about what kinds of approaches you can take to make um, the reality that of, of your own temperament and your child's temperament and, the, temperament and the interaction between them more workable. And I think that ends up being a more useful place to direct your resources than saying, well, I stink as a parent or, or my, my child is, you know, the worst. Oh, for sure. For sure. And I think too, I mean, I talk a lot in the book about asking for help. Because I think that's also something that a lot of moms are reluctant to do. They think, well, you know, I signed on for this mom thing, so this is my responsibility, right? Or like, you know, or they're proud and they don't want people to think that they're struggling. But like asking for help is also so critical that it, like if you are in a space where like you and your kid are not, you know, matching your temperaments that day and you're really struggling, like to to reach out and ask someone for help um, in whatever form that that takes that's useful for you is so so important and uh, again I talk to moms about this all the time I, I feel like um, you know asking for help is, is among the most critical forms of maternal self care like just you know reaching out if you're struggling which again so many moms are reluctant to do 
Yeah, so let's actually turn to talking about that topic of, of self-care because I think it's such an important one. And it's actually one that I struggle with less because of my unwillingness to ask for help and more because just logistically it's hard for me to access it. Like I don't have family yeah. nearby. Sometimes I have three children and there's always you know somebody who's got something going on, either illness or a childcare fail. You know, being in the mental health field, I do recognize the importance of it. So you had this title in your book, um, How Can I Possibly Find Time to Shower When I Have to Bring My Toddler to Her French Lessons? So I think that, you know, fitting it in can be hard because of the pressures that we put on ourselves to right. offer our kids enrichment and deliver whatever they need. Sometimes it's hard because as I'm describing, as I was describing the logistical constraint, and sometimes as you were describing, it can be hard to ask for help because we feel like we should be able to do everything. And so right, I'm curious right. sort of, you know, what are the ways that you, um, it, those are, it's like three different avenues of, of questioning in, in one, but I wonder if you can talk a little bit about how you help moms work in more of that self-care. Sure. Um, so one of the things that's come out recently, I would say in the past like year or so, I don't know, maybe more, but I've seen more of it more recently, um, is this message that self-care is not just manicures and pedicure. That may be a little piece of what self-care is, but there's so much more that moms need to focus on. Um, it, like I said, you know, so, so certainly taking care of yourself is, is one piece of it, but asking for help is a huge piece of it. I also um, think and, and talk uh, in my book, I talk in my book about this a lot. I also think saying no is a really critical part of self-care as well. Yes. I love that. So no important. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Yeah. And, and saying no to the variety of people who are making demands of you, be it, you know, PTOs at your kid's school or your mother or mother-in-law or your kid or whatever. Uh, or or saying, no to saying no to your yeah, kids. Yeah, or your kids. <laughs> totally. Or opportunities for your kids that may sound really cool, but would really mess up your schedule for sure. So, um, so again, when I talk self-care, I talk about all of these things together. And then specifically, you know, the, the B in CBT is behaviorism. And we talk a lot in CBT about like scheduling. Um, and it's really dry and it's really boring. But honestly, I work with moms a lot on their schedules to talk about, all right, well, you know, say you're a mom. And again, this is where values come into play. So say you're a mom who really values, um, let's say in your past mom, you know, pre-mom life, you were a pianist and you really value playing piano and it helps to, to make soothe your soul and connect you with who you were before you were a mother. And you totally stopped playing since you had your kids and you really feel an absence and you're really overwhelmed with your kids. This is where I sit down with moms and we make schedules and we say, all right, when can you schedule in your piano playing? Um, and, you know, and, and I have had moms, I, to be quite honest, I've had moms schedule in like showers <laughs> and basic like yeah. self care, you know, stuff like that, like grooming types of things. Um, as ridiculous as that might sound, because again, when you have a kid or multiple kids, like a lot of these things can go by the wayside. Yes. Um, so a lot of the self-care stuff I talk about is very behavioral. It's really about, okay, what is it that you value? And then how can we incorporate this into your life? Now, we might not be incorporating it in the same way as you may have before you had children, but let's figure out how you can do this, right? Um, and then again, at the same time, I work a lot with moms on assertiveness around self-care, like saying no, saying no to things. I, you know, I, I can't tell you the number of moms that I've worked with who've come to me and given me some version of this story. Like my best friend asked me to volunteer for like the, you know, I don't know, 
kindergarten bake sale committee. And I love my best friend and she's so supportive of me and so supportive of my kids. And, you know, I really don't have an excuse. Like, I mean, technically I do have the time to do this bake sale. By the way, moms who don't work tell me this all the time. Well, I don't work. So I have the time to do this bake sale, um, but I really don't like baking and I don't want to help with this. And in fact, I was just given the opportunity, I don't know, to go to this really cool workout class that I've been dying to try out, but I'm going to help with the bake sale because I feel like I should. Right. So like, that's a really typical example of where like this mom should absolutely say no to this (laughs) bake sale. Right. Like it's self care for her to say no. And it doesn't matter that she doesn't work. All moms need self-care. In fact, I happen to think that staying home with the kids is harder than any job you could possibly, any, you know, um, paying job that you could possibly have. I truly feel that way as someone who worked part-time for many years. So I had like the time at home with the kids and the time in the office. Let me tell you, my time in the office was way It's a vacation. (laughs) Question. No question. And so, um, So I work with moms so much who tell me stories like this just to say, listen, like your mental and physical health is super important and needs to be prioritized, right? And I don't care if you technically do have an hour to bake cupcakes. If that hour could be better spent with you in an exercise class that will really help your mental and physical well-being, take the exercise class. My goodness. Um, So I do a lot of that. I feel like a lot of, um, of, again, really assertiveness work to help empower moms to say no to things um, that, again, will will serve to benefit them in the longer term. Yeah, it kind of reminds me, too, of a conversation that I had with the author of Essentialism. I don't remember what episode this is, but it was with Greg McEwen. And we talked a lot about how we have this narrative in our culture of all the things that we have to do. But often, and, and so, and we literally say that to ourselves, like, I have to say yes, or I have to do this thing for my child, or I have to do this thing for my colleague or my friend. But when you sort of peel back the, and, and sort of get curious about the word have to, the words have to, you can realize that there is more choice than we recognize. It's just that the choices come with opportunity costs because we feel badly about letting somebody down or being less Mm -hmm. than responsible in the way that we've set up our own expectations. But giving ourselves that opportunity to shift our narrative from I have to to I choose to really opens up a lot of different opportunities. And there's very few things that we absolutely have to do, especially when it comes to like the daily, you know, expectations of parenting or of work. Um, And but there are certainly important opportunity costs that come with saying no to something, right? You might disappoint right. a friend. You might not be the person who, you know, is doing as much volunteer work as your neighbor. And you might, in our case, disappoint a patient or as a parent, you might disappoint your kid. That That is true. But recognizing that those choice have opportunity costs, but even that those opportunity costs can come often with advantages of their own. So for example, saying no to your kid might be disappointing to them, but might be an opportunity for them to find other ways to entertain themselves or other ways to develop resilience. And saying no to the bake sale might give you an opportunity to say yes more fully to something that does have more meaning and and bring more joy to you. Um, And I'll sort of use an example from my own life is that I've recently started saying no to... um, hosting birthday parties and to attending a lot of birthday parties with my kids. Oh, I'm right there with you. Yeah. I just, (laughs) I don't enjoy it. I find it really stressful, both the hosting and the attending. And so Mm -hmm. we, we don't 
go to them. And and it has opportunity costs, right? Which is that um, you know I feel a little bit less engaged with my parenting community. I feel a little guilty on behalf of my kids. And then also, you know, sometimes my kids are bored, and I wish that I had said yes. But you know, so it, it has some opportunity costs. But those are value driven decisions for me, and I, I sort of am aware of the opportunity costs, and so they're easier to tolerate when they come. Oh, for sure. And you know what, what I do with moms a lot, and this is like a classic CBT strategy of like the pros and cons. So to think, you know, and I talk about this in the book, like when you're deciding whether or not to say yes to something, sit down and consider the pros to saying yes and the cons to saying yes, exactly what you're talking about. I also find too that a lot of times um, when it's kid related stuff, like the pros are for the kids, but the cons are for the parents. Yes. <laughs> you know what I mean? So like, yeah, your, your example is a great one where like, the pros of like, let's say saying yes to a party for like one of your kids would be like, oh, he gets to go and, you know, hang out with his friends. But the cons are like, you know, it's time for me. It's energy for me. It's, it, you know, then I can't do X, Y, or Z. So I feel like, you know, it, it's really just weighing those two, both the pros and cons for you and for your kids and, and really deciding which sort of side carries more weight. Absolutely. But I made the same choice about birthday parties, as a matter of fact. Is so I'm right, right there with you. Yes. And my, this is the first year my, my sons are both born in April. Neither of them are having birthday parties. We're doing a birthday experience instead. Yeah. I mean, it can be so freeing. I think that Wonderful. I recommend it to everyone. Yes. I think that a lot of the social etiquette and the pressures that we feel in modern parenting life, we often develop a narrative that says like, we have to do, we have to chaperone our kids' field trips. We have to make sure they dress up for dress up day. We have to, you know, host the birthday parties. We have to write thank you cards, all these things. And we we actually have a lot more choice and it can be very freeing to say, I'm not going to do that, which doesn't mean that there aren't costs associated as, as we were just right. talking about, but, but it, it can be just a weight lifted. Right. Oh yeah, for sure. For sure. So I'm curious, in, in what way have you seen your own approach to parenting shift as you've gotten more deep into your thinking and writing uh, about mom brain? So I would say, um, Part of it is just like awareness of my own emotions. Um, I, I talked before about sort of mindful self-compassion of emotions, and I think I've gotten much better at being compassionate towards myself when I'm feeling some strong negative emotions. Um, you know, an example of that is like irritability. So like prior to having kids, I was just not a person who ever got irritable. Like that just wasn't in my emotional, like, I, I just was not, an, I, irritability was not a thing for me. Um, and since having kids, I, I can get quite irritable, <laughs> especially if I'm low on sleep. And um, I beat myself up for that a lot at first. And as I started working with more moms and changing my thinking around this, I was like, you know what? Like, I just have to be compassionate towards myself when I feel irritable because the irritability makes sense in the context of, you know, whatever's going on. Um, and instead of beating myself up for being snippy or we could in that moment because I was frustrated, like let me just let myself be irritable and at the same time start to think about, all right, what can I do to sort of get myself in a different headspace at some point, right? Um, so that would be one thing. I would say I'm more forgiving of myself too when I can't do all, like just what you just said, yeah, Elle, like there's all these pressures. You have to throw birthday parties. You have to sign your kid up for every single travel sports team. You have to, whatever. I've, I've become much more forgiving of myself um, when I don't do those things because I've I've now really um, honed in on my own values as a parent and 
am very clear in my own head about the values, consistent choices that I'm making and recognize that at times that means that I'm not going to do something that maybe the other parents seem to be doing or, you know, that maybe, I don't know, somehow our, our culture makes me feel like I should be doing or whatever. Um, so I've gotten much more, um, I've gotten much better at forgiving myself for those things. Yeah. I love that. What, what are some of the things that you still struggle with? I mean, what, what, what do you feel like are the things that you're really working on these days? Oh, I can easily answer that. So (laughs) prior to this, this is, I am a people pleaser. I was a people pleaser prior to becoming a mother. This is nothing new. Um, but I talked a lot about saying no before, and that is something I'm, it's continually evolving for me. Um, specifically requests of people that I love and care about to do things related to the kids or, you know, like, and whether it's, um, you know, it can be a lot of things. So whether it's like a, a parent I really like in my older son's school asking me to volunteer for something or whether it's a relative who really wants me to put my kids in the car and drive them, you know, an hour and a half to go somewhere. Like I, I am still struggling. I, and I still struggle to say no to those requests. Um, so I would say that's, that's what I'm still, that's what's still evolving in me. Um, and <laughs> still working on and probably will work on for the rest of my life. Cause I'm like, I've always just been kind of an inveterate people pleaser. So that probably, you know, I'll, I'll make as many inroads as I can. And what I, what I honestly, what I really try to do is like, I try to follow my own advice on that. And if it's a request made of me that I really don't want to do, I try to pro and con it. And I try to suck up the cost, which, you know, sometimes are that people are like a little annoyed with you or disappointed. You can't bring your kids a certain place or do a certain thing or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. One thing, so I, I, um, have a similar thing, uh, people pleasing impulse. And for me, it's really, it really is an impulse. And so the thing that I've been working on is, is a mindful pause. I call it my magical mindful pause that before I say yes, I'm sort of an impulsive yes, or I, I say yes. Yeah. To, when people ask me, I just, I say yes. And I, I say it pretty happily. And then after the fact, I think, wait, I, I don't think I actually want to do it, but I already said yes. And then I don't want to be a flake. So I try to follow through, but by then I'm resentful and irritated with myself and irritated with the world. So what I've tried to do is just slow down but it's very, very hard because that yes has become over the course of my life so reflexive that yeah, it's like finding, a default. Yeah, and finding that space between the question and my responsive yes is is hard. But that's the thing that I'm working on is just that pause before I answer and even trying when I can to say let me think about it, which again is, is a work in progress. So, right. But totally, it's a great strategy and buys you some time, mm-hmm. right? So you can really think through, all right, again, what are the benefits and drawbacks of saying yes to this? Yeah. I think that's a, it's a great strategy. Cool. Yeah. Thanks so much for coming on Psychologists Off the Clock today and sharing your valuable wisdom on mom brain. And I um, just definitely want to direct our listeners to your website, drcbtmom.com. That's dr cbtmom.com. Elise has a lot of really cool video clips on there, her essays, and then links to other relevant and related writing. So um, I just want to say thank you again so much for coming on. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thanks so much, Al. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. You can find us on iTunes, Facebook, and Twitter. 
This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you are having a mental health emergency, please dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources on our webpage. Our website is www.offtheclockpsych.com. That's www.offtheclockpsych.com. 